0: Hey everybody, I'm Carl Franzen, the managing editor of Motherboard, and you're listening to a new episode of Radio Motherboard, where I talk to Kim Stanley Robinson, the author of New York 2140, the new sci-fi book that imagines life after sea level rise has flooded large parts of New York City. Given the current political situation in the United States with climate change and how we address it as really hot-button issues right now. We thought it was really important to talk to Stan about these issues in his book, so let's get into it. The novel actually begins with two essentially quants, as they're referred to in the book, but essentially they're programmers, right, for a... Yeah,
1: yeah, sort of the interface between finance and
0: computer programming. And obviously that's something that we've seen in recent years with high-frequency trading, Yeah, uh, you know, the increasing computerization of everything, including, of course, finance, and the rapidness with which people can make trades now, thanks to algorithms and things like this. So is that something that you had been reading about in the
1: news before, or how did that come on your radar as something to to really explore? Well, in the I was trying to understand the 2008 crash, uh, the recession of the subprime mortgage disaster and what that meant and how we might exploit it to do better. And then uh, high-frequency trading algorithms, when you look at them, they're very science fictional. Essentially, it's AI, and it's also a new form of rent in the technical sense of You can take a taking, a financial taking, of a a tiny amount each time, but repeated uh, millions of times per second, then you can begin to make money in between, in the interstices of any financial trade. When a a, a deal is put out on offer, between when it's offered for sale and when it's actually sold, can be a a cut taken on a regular basis, so that now there's a kind of um, secret or silent tax that's a private tax where somebody's making a profit in between the offer and the sell. Well, this is weird and new and science fictional. It's an AI story. and yeah. But then somebody, somebody human's doing that. There isn't really AI thinking up these things. Mm-hmm. There's human programmers and mathematicians and um, technicians thinking up these things.
0: So, and as you alluded to, these two characters, Mutt and Jeff, are... Yeah. are somewhat dissatisfied, actually, with with the current state of not just Wall Street, but of capitalism in generally, at least, at least one of them is. Yeah. And so they decide to use their skills to try and perhaps undermine this system. And that's basically where the novel begins. And so was your thinking going into that, that somebody could have this power to do this, given the programming knowledge and the knowledge of the system? Is this something that you think of as potentially realistic, altering these... 16 laws of uh, capitalism, let's say.
1: Yeah. Well, it's not so much realistic as it is a dream or a hope. Mm -hmm. If, If the laws that the whole world is running by are coherent and can be codified, the written laws, it looks at first like you could fix them by way of a hack so that you just change 16 laws and enter that into the system, and suddenly the world's running better. It's a kind of utopian dream. But, in fact, laws are backed by an immense amount of power that comes down to guns and hegemony, the agreement that everybody gives to obey the laws, that isn't precisely because of gun's in your face. It's because you think you need to in order to keep your job and to keep a part of the system that's everybody So uh, at first you think it's a hack, and then when that doesn't work, because Mutt and Jeff are immediately snatched and stashed away as being dangerous subversives, then you have to think again to politics. So how would you change the laws in an above-board political process that everybody agrees on, essentially votes? Well, that's depressing but true. So the story becomes... How could people do the macro hack of doing politics to change the laws for human good?
0: Yeah, that's a really fascinating uh, parallel, I think, and and one that uh, would be of particular interest to to the motherboard audience because we cover a lot of news about hacking, hackers, you Mm -hmm. know, for Mm -hmm. whether uh, with... In their minds, good intentions are not, you know, hacktivists or, or people out to actually uh, leak information for whatever purpose that they want. And so in this case, as you point out, various characters in your novel are hacking different systems, not just computers, but politics as well and right. society.
1: Right, it's a it's a it's a verb, and uh, uh, it's important which verbs you use. But I think it's a, a good impulse to change the system for the better, and also to be a bit more reactive to reality itself—the reality of climate change, of depleted resources, of income inequality, uh, hunger, for a way too big a percentage of the world's population—that all these things need hacking; they need changing. And then you have to have the conceptual tools to analyze where's the basis of the problem and then what would the solutions be as uh, citizens working together. So that it isn't, a, I guess, in especially in my circles, say the science fiction community, uh, is there a technical solution that you could just institute as a kind of Silicon Valley uh, hacktivist or or um, someone working in computers to change the infrastructure of our Uh, of the Internet Mm -hmm. uh, versus uh, overt kind of politics legislation. Uh, Is there a technical solution or does it remain simply a social solution of all of us talking together about what we want to make the laws? And maybe it's a combination of both, but it's worth exploring in stories. The stories now need to be concerned with this interface and very seldom are they concerned with this interface this is what maybe what science fiction can do that ordinary fiction doesn't do maybe this is what utopian science fiction can do that ordinary science fiction or space opera doesn't do Um, at least for me as a working writer where I only you know a book every two years I can't take on every cool story Mm -hmm. so which story do I tell and this one kind of took over and said this is the story to tell
0: talking about interfaces there are a lot of interfaces not just to the global financial system or to society in this novel but to the city itself i mean the city is almost its own chaotic program in a way and there is a, a rhythm to it that you explore in this you know the different characters of different income levels their different daily routines and what they are concerned about and how that all gets brought together i think is done in a very well constructed way so Talking about some of the research that mm. went into this novel, uh, obviously, you, you've talked about financial algorithms and high-frequency trading and things like this. But when it came to New York itself, you're not a resident of New right. York. You are a resident of Davis, California, pretty much as far uh, away from New York in terms of Interest. Actual, <laughs> Well <laughs> and architecture and things like that yes. that you can get. And yet this Novel, in, in a very, I think, brilliant way, focuses on one building in particular, the old Metropolitan Life building in yeah. downtown Manhattan, mm-hmm. and a bunch of characters that live or reside in or around or cross through this building. And so we were talking before we started here about how that building came onto your radar, and we can tell that story again for the audience. But I'm just curious how you even just got started about not being here in New York. Did you use Google Maps to look around? How did you do all this research? Because the city itself yeah. is such a big character.
1: Well, I visited the city and walked a lot and with a a topographical map in hand because I needed to know how high off of sea level various parts of the city are because it isn't evident because the built infrastructure is so huge that if I were to ask myself and it was the lower east side, is that low north south or is that low high low? And so I needed to come and visit, and I did, and I was on the hunt, and I was having a blast. One thing i got to say is I come from a very boring little Midwestern college town that happens to have been airlifted into California, but it's very boring and small. And New York is very big and very exciting, so there's a chance for a kind of romanticism of the big city, of the hick in the big city, or the small-town boy in the big city, and I think it's periphery core. That when people who are in the provinces come to the capital, it's like, oh, my God, this is amazing. If you live here, it could be just like a giant hassle and it's always too crowded and too expensive, et cetera, et cetera. But if you visit here, it's like, oh, my God. So that's my experience of it. And at first I was intimidated. What do I know about New York? Well, nothing. I know a lot more about Mars than I know about New York. I'm way more comfortable writing about Mars, because everybody is equally ignorant about Mars, and I'm actually a Martian compared to everyone else. <laughs> so that's my hometown. Yeah. But when it comes to New York, it, at first I was intimidated. Then when I came, talked to friends who are native New Yorkers, but also wandered around the city, I realized one of the things that makes New York New York is it's the city where everybody came from somewhere else. Yes. And there are some native New Yorkers, but they don't care. They're not proprietarial. If they were, they'd be crazy. hmm some of them are crazy, but a lot of them are just like, whatever, you know, New York, uh, strangely popular, too popular. It's like being Marilyn Monroe. It's like a curse. Yes, we're New York. We're cursed. You know, go away. Uh, but they, nobody's saying don't write about New York it, unless you were born, you know, in Williamsburg. It would be absurd. Absolutely. So then I began to think I've got the same freedom everybody else does. And this place has a history that anybody can look up if they want to. And then uh, I talk about the old MetLife building as my building, but it's only because I've spent so much time reading about it. I spent one very expensive night in the hotel that now occupies it just to see what it felt like. That was important, Mm -hmm. but expensive, stupidly expensive, I may add. Uh, and then the rest of the city kind of falls into place as you kind of uh, as an artificial exercise in storytelling. Mm-hmm. Where's the important place for the story? Well, when I found out that the HMS Husser went down with two million dollars of gold in 1780, then that part of the city became important. What's there now? And Coney Island's going to go underwater, so I needed to go to Coney Island. The Cloisters are not going to go underwater, so I had to go up to the Cloisters. The Cloister Cluster. The Cloister yes. skyscrapers are there in the year 2040. Uh, 2040. 140, according to your book. Yes, well, what happens, I think, is that in the building craze, if you you have uh, graphinated composites that are lighter and stronger than ever in order to build space elevators, but you don't have a space elevator, what you do have is 300-story skyscrapers that make ours look rather short and stubby because the technical abilities will be there. Now that's science fiction, but it's also New York real estate.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought that up as well, because another wonderful thing about this book for the reader is that you do touch upon so many different, not only aspects of life in New York that grind, but yet that also that splendor and that wonder that one feels sometimes when walking around and you capture that in various scenes of the sunlight falling Uh upon certain buildings and the water and all this aesthetic beauty that can come from living here. But... You're touching upon a number of big themes, not only just capitalism, not only just real estate, not only just Wall Street and financial trading, not only just politics, but I think one of the big themes of the entire book is. To me at least was was survival and the fact that people are surviving through two giant cataclysmic events. I mean, there's the <clears> first <throat> pulse and the second pulse, and this becomes revealed throughout the book, but it's very obvious when the book begins that essentially half of a third of Manhattan to a half of it is underwater. And so yeah, yeah. although buildings of course are rising above that. And so was it important for you to try and reflect all these different facets of life in New York at that time? Or did that just flow sort of from the conceit? Or how did you approach getting both that uh, positive to living in New York and the negative in this time setting? That's
1: a good question, because it was a hard, uh, it was the act of exploring the plot and trying to write the book that kind of made these features come at me as a natural science fiction exercise. You postulate one thing, and then you work out all the secondary and tertiary effects. And the pleasure of reading a science fiction novel is a lot of it in that secondary and tertiary effects that you don't immediately think of. So first you think sea level rise, because sea level rise is going to happen. And if you take the high-end projections and you push them even a slight bit, you get to a scary scenario, a disaster scenario. The mind rushes towards apocalypse. When you say disaster, people think apocalypse, Armageddon, end of the world fantasies. Like, it'll all be over. But the thing is, it won't all be over. Because then, ten years later, people will be coping. And the story of the coping becomes more interesting than the apocalypse itself. So there's a danger there of looking too glib or uh, happy-happy. that a 50-foot sea level rise for New York would be worldwide, and it would be the destruction of the world's economy because it relies on ocean-going trade, and so all the seaports of the world wrecked. Uh, It does seem apocalyptic, but on the other hand, even if you have 10,000 Katrinas in terms of human refugee populations... 20 years later, people will have adjusted, moved inland, and the coast will be of interest at all times. So even though you have a, like a, a insurance and reinsurance disaster, even though you have a human disaster of enormous proportions, the next generation is go well, that's what happened, and now we need to cope. So stories of coping are, to me, more interesting than stories of the apocalypse itself. And so I chose to set this novel... A full generation after the disasters had happened because people are still going to be going on. And young people grow up and go, well, this is natural. This is what we were given. Maybe the generations in the past were idiots. You know, you think of people around 1900 thinking about slave owners or you think about people around 1800 thinking about the French aristocracy before the French Revolution you know, and the guillotines. You think, well, those people were idiots. But that's not the first concern. Mostly you have to get by with your own generation, the people alive in your time and so it's not like a generation in like you were all born, like millennials or baby boomers. It's more everybody alive at the same time mm-hmm. is a generation. And then in a, a certain number of years on, a century on, everybody will be dead. But there will still be a world population that is the generation of that time. So their story is interesting if you're doing science fiction.
0: Absolutely. And as you say, the generations that are coming up after a, a certain disaster, after a milestone of history, they take that as basically the starting point or, or the or the given. And so you do have two characters in this book in particular, Stefan and Roberto. Is that... Yeah how you pronounce them yeah, yeah. And they are essentially what I would call, I mean, they're homeless youth, but, you know, in a previous time, you might call them, uh, if this was like a Dickens novel, like street urchins. They're basically water urchins, literally, yeah, in, this, yeah. in this case, because yes. they're subsiding around the docks of the Met Life building, and they're the ones that get embroiled in this treasure hunt for the HMS Hussar, this Revolutionary War-era British ship that went down with all this gold. And right. so, looking at them in particular as characters, and frankly, all the characters that you have in this book, I mean, you have a number of characters spanning all ages and in levels and interests and things like that so did you deliberately seek out those characters to try and be somewhat representative of the tapestry of New York or did they come from the plot or how did you go about crafting this specific set of characters including
1: the citizen as well? The characters that living in the Old Met Life building kind of came first and I did indeed try to choose people from all walks of life people who run the infrastructure, people who are involved in finance, people who do computer programming, people who do local politics and social work of taking care, and then some refugees, which Stefan and Roberto are, in effect, representatives of as being water rats. So, yes, a building novel is a kind of a genre or a... Uh, No, it's more of a form. Uh, Any genre could be a building novel and vice versa. But what I mean by that is Thomas Dish's 334 or Jeff Ryman's 253. It's interesting that numbers come up in these uh, building novels. John Lanchester's Capital, which is a London street, all the people that happen to live on homes on a London street in particular. I'm told that in France around the time of Zola, and Zola is supposed to have done one, but I don't know the title, apartment novels. The people who live, like, in the same building, they don't Mm. have any other connection with each other. In some of these books, they never connect at all, but the obvious thing to try for is a plot that draws them all together, and at least for me, they get to know each other and have a macro plot. It's more interesting in storytelling terms than... Otherwise, it becomes like an anthology of short stories, Mm -hmm. as in Tom Dish's 334, a very great New York novel that I recommend to anybody. It might be out of print, but it's easily available because of Amazon.com. Tom Dish, 334, great novel. And so it's in that tradition that I tried to get this vertical spread of characters. And then what happens is... I have a serendipitous discovery. Oh, my God, a treasure ship went down in Hellgate in 1780. People have looked for it through the centuries. Crazy people, uh, treasure hunters. But for kids, it's got to be a dreamy thing. And also, it's a joke because there's always hidden capital that the new generation is going to go back and mine the past. I mean, capital is the useful residue of human labor. So a building is capital, but also a big old pile of gold is capital just because we used to have this gold standard. So it's a way of hunting for what's useful out of the past or what's valuable out of the past Mm -hmm. as money. And so it becomes a symbol as well as an active plot element and a game to play. Mm -hmm. Because one thing's for sure, with novels, I'm not a a financial analyst. I'm not a historian even. I'm a novelist. And so what I need are stories. And so that's what I was on the hunt for. Absolutely. It it makes sense and I think it fits really well, again, like you said, with all the other themes of the novel. So
0: uh, we're we're getting closer to the end of this. So I did, of course, want to ask about uh, some of your other recent novels in particular. Mm-hmm. Is this? Is New York 2140 set in the same universe as 2312 and Aurora, both novels
1: that are actually more futuristic and, and forward-looking, I think, than, than those? Yeah, no, I never—every uh, time I start a novel, I just try to forget all the past ones. So it's not a collective—there's no Kim there's Stanley— no, There's Robert no future histories. No, I don't like these future histories. I think they're restrictive and— It's a game that a certain generation of science fiction writers did. But what my feeling is, is that it restricts you to thinking that you did, like, in my case, it would be 30, 40 years ago. Well, that's absurd. What you want is that every time to take in all the new information and start a fresh history. Mm -hmm. Now, certain elements keep coming up. Um, Floods, finance. um, I want to be free always to invent something entirely new. Now, 2312 does have a Drowned Manhattan. Mm -hmm. But I... Insufficiently thought it out, where mm-hmm. I thought all of Manhattan would drown, and it turned out that I just didn't know the geography of the place. Mm-hmm. And when I studied the geography, I was thinking, "Whoa, I need to pay attention to the fact that large parts of Manhattan would never go underwater." Yeah. And then write a more accurate story. And also, I want the financial revolution that didn't happen in twenty three twelve to happen in twenty one forty, so that the the histories don't match up. Okay, Abs- and absolutely. And they shouldn't. They yeah. sh- to my mind, they shouldn't match up. And the poor writers that have stuck themselves in a future history. Industry. They're always backstoring and jiggering, and and they essentially have put manacles on their brain. Retconning, as they call it in the in the comic book industry, to go, ba-
0: to go back and re- say, okay, now Spider-Man is born in 1997 instead of 1967. It's, it's resetting in a way, the <laughs> chronology to try and uh, fit everything in. Yeah, that you no, I,
1: I, I hate that stuff. Yeah.
0: Better just one novel at a time. Excellent. That makes sense to me. So as you point out, there are themes that come up Recurringly, and there's also technologies. And so you had mentioned earlier space elevators, obviously, that's a big feature of 2312. Uh, The whole Mars trilogy that you wrote, terraforming, you know, we're hearing all about that with Elon Musk nowadays. And so, and you wrote about that in the 1990s before Elon Musk was really even a well known figure. And so, um, when you are looking at the technologies that you're going to use, in service of your stories are you looking at scientific journals or where are you getting this idea about the nanomaterials or the metamaterials that are being used in both space elevators and these skyscrapers that are rising 300
1: feet in uh, new york 2140 that's a good question because my first impulse is to say i don't know <laughs> it comes out of the air but that's not quite right and what i need to do is think it out I read Science News, which is a great periodical that comes out now every two weeks. Mm-hmm. And um, I get the print edition, a website I don't even look at. But Science News is attempting to do for sciences what uh, what you guys are doing for culture. So every two weeks, I'm getting the latest out of the sciences. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when I read an article, I'll go, oh, my God, that's a story right there. Or that helps me in my story. It happens a lot. Mm-hmm. And then I often call the researcher up. Oh, great. I just call him on the phone, and it'll be like, University of Texas, I need to talk to uh, Dr. Dr. Donald Blankenship, a glaciologist. And sometimes, five minutes later, I'm talking to the guy. They just say, oh, well, I'll put you through. Um, and scientists love to talk about their work. Absolutely. So, and then the other thing that happens is the technical literature that these things are coming out of, like Nature Magazine or Science, or now online because the the links from one thing to another will often take you right to the technical paper. Like the James Hansen paper from last year that's on sea level rise, on abrupt sea level rise, like in, in one century 10 meters, mm-hmm. which is mysterious and needed to be explained in geological terms of how did it happen and why. Uh, well, that popped up in my inbox through following various channels And I guess what I'm saying is that right now we're in a data sphere, and it's partly the work that you guys are doing, that one way you could say it is everybody knows everything. Mm -hmm. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody with a smartphone. Mm -hmm. And there are more smartphones than there are humans. So you can even be illiterate and still know everything that's important. And by that, I I mean oppressed people who are either poor or oppressed in patriarchal systems who have never been taught to read. They still talk to each other and they still know everything in terms of what's important, like I am being oppressed. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for those of us who aren't being oppressed, who are literate and who are engaged, you know everything that's important. And then what you need is a filtering device, an ideology that gives you a way to sort the importance of stories and also then what to do about it. Mm -hmm. If you know that your labor is being exploited, that's great. But do you know that your life is being appropriated or that your planet's being appropriated and that industrial or labor exploitation is just a smaller part of a greater injustice system that is featured in, say, 19th century Marxist theory but isn't fully understandable unless you get 21st century eco-Marxism that includes the planetary appropriation that's already completed and now we're in the destruction phase. So you can't get to the next phase of capitalist expansion because we've maxed out and the moon is useless, and the solar system is useless. So now we have to reorganize everything in order to create justice and sustainability. Then everybody knows everything gets organized like by magnetism or by uh, polarization on your glasses to where you can tell what's important and what's not, and also what to do about it. You get politicized. That comes
0: up in both New York 2140 and, of course, 2312 and a number of your novels. But in particular, I think 2312 I'm thinking of because it's set in this time when the solar system is is basically fully exploited, as you point out, or, or, or conquered to a large extent that, that is possible or is being colonized in, in the way that is yeah. technically possible. And right. you talk about late capitalism in that book. So how would you identify yourself politically?
1: I'm an American leftist mm-hmm. uh, uh, with a Marxist education. and But you need to be a neo-Marxist or a post-Marxist. There's more going on, when Marx is analyzing history, he's still the most useful historian that we have, our political economist. When Marx is uh, talking about what the future will bring, he's being a science fiction writer, and is just as bad at it as every other science fiction writer, <laughs> like me. I will claim that m- me and Karl Marx, as science fiction writers, are both equally bad. You can't predict the future, <laughs> yeah. and he couldn't anymore, and his predictions have been proved wrong by what happened subsequently. It's not his fault. Nobody can do it. Mm-hmm. But you do need that basic education in economic relations and in political economy, which he can be part of. So I'm an American leftist. In 2312, I was trying to uh, shock myself. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about the younger generations that you guys represent, which is to say, what did I not know, like when I was writing the Mars books, because it wasn't knowable, because it hadn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. And what if there are uh, 20 genders? Uh, and uh, how am I going to? I figured if I was writing sentences that boggled my mind, then readers would be equally boggled. Yeah, mission accomplished. (laughs) That was Kim Stanley
0: Robinson. His new book, New York 2140, is out now. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And thank you to our editor, Tim Barnes. See you next week for a brand new episode of Radio Motherboard.